Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of the Nathan Wolfel Outdoors podcast. I am Nathan Wolfel of NathanWolfelOutdoors.com. Thank you very much for joining me today. Per the usual, a few housekeeping items to tackle at the onset of the show. First of all, be sure to check out NathanWolfelOutdoors.com frequently to ensure that you're not missing the latest content, tips, tricks, videos, recipes, stories from the Wisconsin outdoors. I try to update the site at least once a week. So visit often and you won't miss a thing. You can find me on social media at Nathan Wolfel Outdoors on Facebook or on Instagram at ndubs41. That's at N-D-U-B-S 41 on Instagram. Today's show is going to discuss a topic that is super important. It's critical when discussing the overall health of wildlife in our state, but it's not super fun to talk about. It's a difficult conversation to have, but we're going to have a conversation about chronic wasting disease. CWD has become in the last 20 years, a permanent part of our landscape here in the state. And that's a problem for a host of reasons. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But to me, you cannot have a well-informed well-rounded discussion about deer hunting in Wisconsin without mentioning the ramifications of CWD. So we're going to try to take a take stock of where we're at as a state, what the current situation is, and what we can do to help tackle this very important issue. And to help us do that, we'll be joined by Patrick Durkin, who's an outdoors writer from Wisconsin. He lives in Eau Claire. He's been an outdoors newspaper columnist since 1984. He's a wildlife research contributor to Meat Eater. And he's a freelance writer and editor whose work has appeared in numerous publications over the years. Just a great source of knowledge and wisdom here in Wisconsin. So he was kind enough to join us and we're going to try to level set of where we're at as a state in regards to CWD, where we're going the importance of managing this problem and discuss what we can do, what the average person can do, what the average hunter can do, how we can make an impact on the course CWD is taking in our state. But before we dive into that, a little background on chronic wasting disease, because it's a term that gets thrown around a lot, but I think that we, we need to start from a, a specific set of shared information here to make sure that we're having informed discussions. CWD was first discovered in America in the late 60s in captive deer in Colorado. By 1981, Colorado had identified its first case of CWD in wild deer. In 2002, CWD was discovered in Wisconsin for the first time, and now currently 38 of 72 counties in Wisconsin have had a deer that has tested positive for CWD throughout the testing process. So why is this important? Well, the first thing is that CWD, it's extremely transmissible. And like the other diseases in its disease family, it is always fatal. CWD is a form of a disease called a TSE, a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy. And those can affect animals as well as humans, though there have been zero documented cases of CWD making the leap to humans. 
there are other TSEs that have made the leap to humans. An example of that is Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease that affects and kills actually one in a, uh, one in a million Americans each year. Mad cow disease is something we've dealt with in the past as a nation. And these vicious diseases affect the brain. They impact prions or proteins in the brain and basically destroy the central nervous system over time. These diseases have a long incubation period, but once the symptoms begin showing signs, the deterioration is rapid. And they're just brutal, brutal diseases. And that's part of what makes them so tricky to handle. These long incubation periods, most deer that have CWD don't present signs because they don't start showing symptoms until the last month or two of their lives. And though it hasn't impacted humans directly in terms of humans contracting CWD, it has an impact on the, on the larger landscape and definitely is a detriment to our wildlife management efforts in Wisconsin. CWD affects members of the cervid family of animals. So hooved mammals such as white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, reindeer, things of that nature. But in Wisconsin, the primary issue right now by far with CWD is white-tailed deer. We have a pretty sick population of deer. And even though that's the case, because of the long incubation problem, this issue is not really staring us in the face the way other issues could. And in many ways, that has allowed us as hunters in our state to become kind of numb to what's going on. And Patrick and I will discuss that as well. Because largely speaking, it seems by the estimations of many scientists whose papers I have read, whose interviews I have listened to, in Wisconsin, eradication of CWD is almost out of the question. At least as things stand right now, it's not likely, but that doesn't mean that we can't do a few things to slow the spread, a few things to control the health of our deer herd while we come up with additional solutions. As of right now, science does not have a cure for CWD. And that means herd management is exceedingly important. And Patrick and I discussed that at length. And a quick caveat here I want to add just to, just to level set with everyone. Patrick and I are, are not scientists. We're just people who have done some reading, done some research, have listened to some very smart people talk about this. But we're trying our best to keep science as part of this conversation because it needs to be. But it seems to us that in order to control CWD in our state, which is an important initiative, make no mistake, for a host of reasons that we'll explain, hunters are going to need to be involved at levels that largely they have not been involved to this point in the process. If this was going to go away on its own, we're two decades into this. If this was going to go away on its own, it would have by now. But the fact of the matter is, we're going to need to try new things, new management styles and tactics to help get our arms around this situation and this problem. So what do you say? Let's get right into the conversation here with Patrick Durkin. 
All right, everyone. As I mentioned at the onset of the show, I am here with Patrick Durkin, who is an outdoor writer from Wisconsin, as a matter of fact. He has been a newspaper columnist since 1984. <laughs> he is a contributor to Meat Eater, amongst many other things. His work has appeared in numerous publications over the years. And we are very lucky to have him on the show to discuss, amongst other things, chronic wasting disease today. So first of all, Patrick, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Well, thanks, Nathan. I appreciate the invitation to be with you. I'm looking forward to getting into what is a very not fun topic to talk about. But before we do, I wanted to start with a couple lighter things. This is a question I asked okay. all of my guests. Who or what got you into the outdoors? Um, for me, I think the one person most responsible for my outdoor interest was my paternal grandmother. Uh, my dad's mother lived in the same house that I was raised in. You know, she, she, um, I think we moved in with her or she moved in with us, depending on how you look at it, um, when I was like seven years old. And she wasn't a hunter or fisherman, but she um, knew the outdoors. She, you know, I, I often tell people my story is that um, I learned the outdoors basically with a hatchet. My grandmother gave me a hatchet when I was like five years old and turned me loose. So I learned <laughs> things like um, I learned to identify trees by their bark. She'd say, like, you can cut down all these locust trees or you can cut down all these young maple trees. And she'd show me, show me what they look like. And so I got good at identifying trees by bark. And then, too, just by kind of hanging around her and talking to her, I got to know a lot of different birds, um, different, different different animals. But, you know, like in Madi I grew up on the west side of Madison back in the 60s. And deer hunting wasn't all that big around there back then. So I didn't really get into deer hunting until I was like a teenager. I didn't really start hunting until I was a teenager, but I started fishing at a very young age. I, I remember fishing by age um, six or seven, and I know by eight, um, I know for a fact I was fishing by age eight. And then it was my dad teaching me how to, uh, the basics of you know shooting and angling and that kind of stuff. And But dad was um, pretty casual about hunting and fishing. He, he hunted and fished that wasn't something that we grew up hunting and fishing with him much. You know, he, he um, I'd say fishing by far was a lot more of his interest than hunting was. By the time I came along, his hunting interest had pretty much faded away. Where did the writing part of this come into everything? Because you've been you've um, been at it for a while, but that that had to come from yeah. somewhere too. Well, I was always I didn't I didn't appreciate um, the fact that I could write. I was probably the last person I know who knew me to um, <laughs> recognize that this might be might be the one thing I could do. Um, I I um, it's it's it sounds so silly, Nathan. But my when I went in the Navy at age nineteen, I the, I, the story I remember the, the the experience I remember was coming home from the recruiter's office, and I was determined to be a, what was called the Navy called a hull maintenance technician where they taught you welding, um, firefighting, damage control work, um, sheet metal work, lots of nice, good trade things. Because I wanted to be a firefighter when I was coming out of high school. My dad was a firefighter and his dad was a firefighter in Madison. So I thought that was my path and I really wanted to get on it. But I came home from the recruiting office from the Navy. My dad's paging through all the materials and he says, why don't you look into the journalism program. The Navy has a journalism program. And I didn't, you know, Navy's un unlike a lot of the branches, the other branches, um, they have journalists on, their own trained journalists on almost every 
major size ship in the Navy, hmm. and also all, all the bases they have, um, people working at what, what were then the newspapers and TV stations and stuff. So they had a decent number of journalists in the Navy. And But I was convinced that I wanted to be a firefighter and stuff, and my dad still tried twice. He says, you know, the Navy, he was in the Coast Guard Reserve, so he knew all about the Navy and Coast Guard, and he said, they're going to teach you basically the same things that um, all you need to know for firefighting. And, when you get, and then if you do this, you know, he says, if you come back and become a firefighter, you'll have t- time off during the week to, to, to do the writing you ever want. And you can do it as a part-time job. And then you can retire when you're 55 and you'll be set for life. <laughs> and of course, I knew better, so I didn't listen to him. And I went, I came, I came out of the Navy. By the time I get, came out of the Navy, I realized Dad was right that I, I should go into journalism because <laughs> I, I learned all these great <laughs> skills in the Navy. And then I realized that when I was competing, if you're, you know, you, when, you're a, um, when you're working in a shop on, on a ship with other guys who also do the same kind of work as you do, you can you kind of compare and contrast and, and you get competitive about who's good at welding, who's good at making stuff and making stuff come out good the first time. And after about three or four years of that, you start realizing that you aren't that great at, great at some of these, these <laughs> skills. And so I, I learned the hard way that um, – Dad had been right again that um, I should have stuck with journalism. So I can, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a bad um, welder, and I wasn't a bad. I, I'd end up doing a lot of locksmith work in the ship I was on because it was a big repair ship. And so by the time I came out, I had, I learned a lot of these great skills. But ultimately, by writing home a lot, and then writing for for um, helping other people write stuff in the navy. I realized I was not too bad at writing, so I went back to school then when I got out of the Navy and got the GI Bill, finished it, got a, got a degree in journalism. And that was like, I think I graduated from UW Oshkosh in 1983, and I've been working ever since. I actually started working um, two years into college at, at the local newspaper in Oshkosh in the sports department and just worked my way up from there. Interesting, interesting. And I, I, I want to transition a little bit before we get into CWD talk. Uh-huh. Someone who has seen what you have seen in terms of the, the natural world and spent the amount of time hunting, fishing, hiking that you have. This is a bit of a loaded question, but I want your perspective uh-huh. on this. How lucky are we to live where we live in Wisconsin? Because I, I it hit me last fall. In the same weekend, I got to chase king salmon. I got to hunt for deer. And I got to shoot my, I got to shoot almost my limit of ducks in like, 48-ish hours, and honestly, I had a great chance at succeeding at all three of those things, and I didn't have to drive more than an hour from my house to do any of it. Mm-hmm. And what yeah. you have seen of the world and hunting and fishing across our country, how lucky are we here in Wisconsin with the resources and the mix of them that we have? I'm really I'm really glad you brought that up because I have thought about that a lot in my life, and I started, frankly, from... In, especially in my Navy days, serving with guys from all over this country. And for the first time, realizing that a lot of the southern states back in the 70s, and even, even some today still, didn't allow you to hunt on Sundays. You know, Sunday, Sunday hunting wasn't allowed and still isn't allowed in many places um, in, the, in the south. Another thing I noticed was that um, Wisconsin, um, I wasn't big on the public lands hunting when I was a kid. But I knew, but I knew from experience from going up north and going around the Wisconsin River area, 
that there's decent amounts of public land that we could all use. And then you meet guys from um, Texas and um, some of the southern states, Virginia, whatever it might be, and for them to find public public land to hunt on, pretty uncommon. And so it, that right there stood. I stood I, when I came back from the Navy, then came home. I I was um, living near um, uh, seventeen miles northwest of Oshkosh, and near a little town called Winnicani. And down at the end of the end of the Lake Poygan, there was this big marsh called the Poygan Marsh, and I spent the next. Um, Oh, seven or eight years hunting that marsh pretty hard for deer, deer especially, but also ducks. And that reminded me again how lucky I, lucky I was to live in Wisconsin. Because when I was my station in Norfolk, Virginia, um, where, where my ship was stationed, the home port was Norfolk, and and to get to go hunting, um, on public lands, I would drive five hours on usually Friday afternoon, drive all the way up to the mountains of Western Virginia out in uh, Bath County was the place, the county I hunted in. And then I'd hunt Saturday, and unless I had unless I had Monday off, I would come home um, Sunday morning, drive back to the ship, because you, you couldn't hunt Sundays. And so Man. you realize all this, to, 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 to hunt, you really had to jump through hoops. Whereas Wisconsin is just open all the time, and, and the thing that I find fun about Wisconsin, fun but also frustrating, is that we we have all this opportunity, we have all this public land, all these pu- so much public water, and then we once we have all this stuff at our grasp, all we do is fight about it. You know who gets to use it? Who gets to use it when? And you you see it on these recreational trails. They don't want hunters on them sometimes, and then hunters get mad about other hunters. And I think yeah, we're, and then then they get in into December. We start fighting among ourselves about, well, who should be able to be out in the woods right now, the snowmobilers or, or hunters? And I always think, well, I think both can get along just fine. But no, we got to fight about that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting, um, no matter how much you give people, they still want more and they still think they're being put up, put out. And I, I always wish we could just have your perspective and think, we're a lucky people, and I, I describe myself a lot as Wisconsin chauvinist because I really realize and really believe we have a wonderful state with so many good opportunities, and it's gotten better in my lifetime, not worse. And we have more public lands now than we ever have when I was a kid growing up, more access to it. The water quality is better. I see all these really good things that have happened in my lifetime, and my worry now in recent years is that we're um, – I think taking a lot of that stuff for granted and acting like it's all by accident that we that what we have was just always like this. And I think, no, I'm 66 years old, and I can remember when things were not this nice, not this um, uh, like a great, great example right now where I live. I live in Eau Claire, in this area, and between here and the Mississippi River, in recent years, the water quality has gotten so good that the perch, yellow perch, have just exploded in this area. And now we have people fighting about that. You know, that <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a column this past week about um, as the perch numbers went up and fishing pressure increased. Well, then the, you start seeing more guiding operations show up to take guys, you know, into the backwaters of the Mississippi to go perch fishing. Well, then you get all the guys who've been um, doing that on their own getting mad because now all these other people from outside the area are coming in with guides and, and fishing their spots as if as if they have exclusive use to it. And I think, you know, you guys, 
if you don't like the way it's set up, then go go work at it and, and find a better way of doing it. But really, no one's breaking any laws here. They're all, we're all entitled to use these waters and these backwaters. And, you know, I get grumpy about it too, but I understand too that if you want public lands, we want public waters, well, it, we're going to have conflicts. And it's just, I don't think it's just worth all the aggravation you know, of, of fighting about it. We, you know, you think of how many people around this country would love to have our problems. Yes, certainly. And perspective is important. And I guess that's, that's a perfect segue into what our primary conversation is going to be about with CWD. And I think part of what has happened here from what I have learned um, because let's be let's be honest. At my age, CWD was discovered in Wisconsin in 2002. As as mm-hmm. my time as a legal hunter, this fiasco was all I've known. However, right. I have family members right. who have taught me, and and even during slower years, will not hesitate to point out to me how tough deer hunting was not all that long ago. And but mm-hmm. it's that perspective of we've taken for granted the direction our deer herd has generally gone for a very long time now. Oh, very and much so. we're starting to become numb to the CWD thing too. So I want to, I want to turn it over to you for starters so we can level set uh-huh. from a CWD standpoint, where are we at as a state right now? What is the situation? Because as best I can tell, it's something we've known about for two decades in our state and it seems like it's something for a whole host of reasons. I mean, man, this can be mind-numbing sometimes, but for a whole host of right. reasons, we as a collective group of hunters have bungled. Our our state wildlife agencies have bungled. Our legislators have bungled. Uh, where are we and how did we get here? Yeah, I, I um, well, we could talk all night about this, but <laughs> yeah, the, the, the one, one place to start, though, is I can't argue with anything you just said because... Um, I wrote a column about, let's see, it's almost a month ago now. I pointed out that, um, but the best guess we have, the best science we have, is that only, only about thirty percent of Wisconsin's deer hunters have ever gotten a deer tested for CWD. You know, even though, you know, we're, most of us have shot a deer in that in the last twenty years, <laughs> but you think seventy percent of us have not gotten one tested. And even in the areas where they have a lot of CWD, um, like the number one county for CWD is is um, Iowa County, west of Madison. Well, last fall, um, that was only I think thirty one percent of the deer killed in that in that area were tested. You know, less than one third were actually getting tested. And I I, I think I could blame a lot of things here, but uh, you know I think the biggest problem is that. CWD is a real. Um, we have we have we still have people asking, well, if it's such a bad thing, why aren't we seeing dead deer in the woods? I think, well, if you don't think people aren't finding dead deer in the woods, you're not paying attention. There's, yeah, you know, I, I get I get emails quite often from people down in that region, who um, I I got one t- I think just yesterday from a guy. They bought land near Spring Green, out in Iowa County, and he says last year they shot three three antlerless deer and because it's a small piece of property that he's hunting and they, they shot three deer all tested positive and he, and he said that for them deer hunting has become do you really want to keep hunting because every deer they've shot now for the last you know two years which isn't a lot of, of time you know evolved here but still it's like five six deer all tested positive so he, so 
you know, he, he won't, I'm like him, I won't eat a deer that tests positive for CWD. Now, some, some, some people will. But I think a fair question to ask people who, who say they would still eat them is it's, the reason they're able to say that, I, I think, is because typically the, the problem with this disease is not until the deer is like near death, like maybe two or three weeks, a month away from dying, does it really start showing what they say, the clinical signs you know, of, of CWD, where they're drooling, they're losing weight fast, their rib, rib cage is showing, they look, honest to God, sick now. But that's just the very end, they look like that. The, I've shot now three bucks in the last two years that tested positive, and they look like perfectly healthy deer when I saw them walking in. They looked like healthy deer when I walked up on them after I, after I got them, and they looked like healthy deer after I opened them up and gutted them out. You know, you could not tell these were sick deer. But I, but I guess my thought is um, I'm taking the laboratory's word for it that these deer were sick. You know, I, I took, took a test in, sample, and it, it tested positive. But my guess is, is if I'd happened to shoot that deer a year later, when it's closer to death, or whatever, whenever its time frame might be, I'm guessing I could just look at it and go, "I'm not eating that deer," you know. Even if I, because you could tell this by looking at it, the thing's sick. But the thing was sick <laughs> the day I shot it. But you know, because it doesn't look to my eye to be sick, I think, "Oh, I can ignore it." And I think that's what a lot of people are doing, you know, Nathan. That they're just ignoring the science on this, and it. I, I don't. I mean, to me, it'd be like ignoring um, your own diagnosis for a certain illness that you right now might not be hurting you, but if you don't take some some action on it within a few months, your decision not to do, act today can will will really harm you down the road. And a case that comes up in my mind is um, uh, something like shingles, where a, a person I know um, he he was in an at risk category. Decided not to get the vaccine because you know, he didn't, didn't think it'd be that big a deal. Well, he got it, and that disease just got worse and worse and worse to the point where it ended up crippling his, his right arm. And I think, well, if you'd acted when they when you had a chance to act, you wouldn't be dealing with this today. Well, you probably wouldn't be anyway. So that's that's where I get frustrated with this. Is um, you know, we've had warnings, we've had everything you can imagine to get people to take it seriously, but. You know, they, they keep seeing, for the most part, um, what looked, looked to be healthy deer. And then now, as as the disease has gotten worse and it has spread and it has um, increased in density within the, the endemic area, now it's getting harder to ignore it. But now, you know, it's typically the human tragedy is we typically ignore things till, till um, they get too far gone. Now we can't do anything about it, or at least we're going to struggle really hard not to do it and I still think it's not hopeless, but it'd take a real attitude change to um, get on top of this now. Certainly. And I think you hit on something interesting about the comparison and, and how the disease plays out, right? It's that yeah. these diseases have, and, and I, I pointed out the onset of the show when I recorded the intro, but I'm going to do it with you on the show too. Neither okay. you nor I are scientists. <laughs> We're just right. people who have spent time reading about this, listening to others speak about this, learning through our own experiences. However, I'm going to float out some sciencey things here. Good. CWD, CWD is a member of a family of diseases called TSEs. They have mm -hmm. extremely long incubation periods. 
Some of them do affect humans, though we don't have record of transmission from CWD from uh, from anything to a human at this point. It is generally mm -hmm. believed and understood that the risk of transmission is a non-zero number. We're just not entirely sure what that number is, but that the other the other items in this a lot of the other items in this family, uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease. Very, very remote, but absolutely something humans can suffer from. Mad cow disease, yeah. something that some humans did have to deal with for a little bit until we regulated how we fed cattle. Um, mm -hmm. It's incredible to me that if you think about the disease, as you brought up with shingles, the example, if, if, if we were treating a human this way, how differently people you would think, in most cases at least, would think about their own health or the health of someone they loved or cared about regardless of whether they showed symptoms or if that that particular disease was staring them right in the face or not. But because we can separate ourselves from our deer herd and our deer population, and heck, if you don't go and get your deer tested, which unfortunately a lot of people don't, you, it's not going to be a problem that stares you right in the face. It seems that everyone's kind of reluctant to acknowledge a lot of the pain points that we're about to endure due to our relative lack of action in the early stages of this whole mess. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I could have said what you just said. That's, you, you took the words right out of my <laughs> mouth. Uh, one, one thing too that I think we should bring up is, I, I'm sure you hear it. I know I've heard it a lot is that people claim this, well, CWD has always been here. Yeah. You know, we're just now able to detect it better. And, and I always think, show me some information to back up that statement. And the thing I'll point out to people is that, um, as far as we know, the earliest case of CWD we ever found that we documented was back in, in 1966, I believe, or 66 or 68, but I'm pretty sure it's 66 in Colorado. And we still have not found any evidence of the disease before then. And once, because once science could identify the disease, know what they're looking at, know what they're looking for, typically they can go back in time and start finding evidence of stuff that just didn't recognize it earlier. And the case I give, I, I think it's an interesting thing because it gets into a lot of um, cool stuff about our, uh, human history. You know, when they discovered and put a, put a face to Lyme disease back in the, uh, I think it's probably like the 70s or so, um, they were able to go back and start finding evidence of, of um, Lyme disease centuries before in, in people in in um in um, different animals. And in fact, this um prehistoric guy that found frozen in the glacier in, in the Italian Alps from prehistory, it was like I think eight thousand years ago, they took a blood sample from that that body and found that he had Lyme disease. Hmm. So I think, you know, so if 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 science could not find that now we've had CWD in Wisconsin for twenty years if we have not now found evidence of CWD before its initial time in 1966, I think that kind of tells me that, that it probably just wasn't around. It is one of the diseases that evolved and then finally got into, into the deer herd. And then we, you finally start recognizing it because it, it, but we have still not find any, any evidences ever around before then. So how can you say it's always been here? You can't show me anything in the, in the human records 
that CWD has a history that we don't that um, we just suddenly can discover. I think no, it's, it, it, it probably I don't know how diseases work. That's way beyond my um, reporting skills to understand that all that stuff works. But it's something that's fairly modern. It came along, and it's not the first disease that that's come along that um, we didn't have before. So this isn't that's not unique either. We didn't have COVID a few years ago, right. for example. You know, it's. Right. You're spot on. And that's a great, I mean, that's a great timely comparison as well. But I, and, and you're right, that is something you hear a lot. And it's, it's the, the comparisons, this is not a fun thing to, to harp on, but the comparisons to what the human condition and mentality toward COVID is and how we've handled CWD in our state, there are a lot of parallels. Um, just, just in terms of public opinion, in terms of how, about theories that have been floated out or how information and what information gets spread, especially, and this is a key thing I wanted to hone in on with you, what people, mm -hmm. we learned a lot about human nature these last few years and what people are willing to do, even in extreme circumstances, what's, what people are willing to do and what people are not willing to do and how, mm -hmm. what those percentages look like. Now, if you apply those lessons to, to CWD, it's, Having this, having this background and everything tied together, our current situation seems to make a lot more sense. When you start learning about people's motivations, their values, the, the, the way they, they see their place in the world and their importance or their lack of it. And mm -hmm. what's interesting to me is that one of the theories I've heard floated out on a couple podcasts, outdoor related podcasts, obviously, is that mm -hmm. there just wasn't an appetite early in CWD for doing the kind of calling of the herd that it was going to take to be impactful. This, the public not realizing just kind of like at the beginning of COVID a lot of mm -hmm. people weren't comfortable with what we were being asked to do and even right. after we found out the severity of the situation still didn't feel super inclined to listen to anyone or anything other than their own conscience well uh -huh. here we are with CWD where people didn't want to hear about only having a deer every five acres for a little while yeah. until we oh, could maybe eradicate right. CWD but now the problem is We've got a booming deer population, but also a booming CWD problem, and it's amazing the parallels mm -hmm. you can draw between the two events. Oh, yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's a fascinating look at human behavior and the the impact of what I consider um, would be good good leadership. And see, I'm old enough to remember when um, polio was still a, a major um, worry for for for, um, for humans. I was only about preschool to kindergarten age, but, but I remember standing in line after after church on Sundays, going to a local high school or middle school. Jun it's called junior high back then, and standing in line with with everyone else around to to, to get this little cup of um, a serum to um, as as a polio vaccine. I think you took I think you took two, maybe three. Um, trips to the, the school to get this over a course of a few weeks or months or whatever. But it was, it was basically basically the way I remember it was that it was a national responsibility we had to, to each other and our communities that we'd get this vaccine so that we could kill, wipe out polio. And I, and I often wonder if that was part of the problem with, with um, COVID and part of the problem with CWD is it wasn't, there wasn't enough dread, worry that that a person's mother or a person's kid could get contract this disease, whereas polio, 
People saw with their own two eyes so many cases where people were healthy one day and crippled the next, where all of a sudden they couldn't walk anymore. And yet little kids were growing up having to wear leg braces and able to get around at all. And I think that really um, scared the crap out of people. Whereas um, COVID, for some reason, um, people were able to still detach a lot from that, even though people were dying. They, we tended to, um, I think a lot of times, look at it and go, well, you know, you heard people saying on TV, well, they were, they're mostly old people. I think, well, I'm old. I don't want to die <laughs> from this stuff. And then they, when you hear when you hear about um, the suffering that would go on with COVID and still the reluctance, I think, well, I guess maybe people have to go right into these emergency rooms and... Um, these rooms are being where the people are being treated and really see firsthand the degree of the suffering because you know people that were treating them definitely talked about it but for some reason that fear didn't translate and for some reason we just didn't see the um i don't know nobody really in politics or whatever it might be really is able to rally people around the idea doing it for the good of all uh, not just for yourself for your own protection, but for the good of all as a society, that if we all get vaccinated like we did against polio, the chances of the, this disease spreading out there further and mutating again and again and again, th- that re- those chances get reduced. But we never have gotten that. Um, we've never gotten that far with this for some reason, and that's in CWDs. I see the same thing that I could. I, I used to. I used to always look at CWD and think, well. Maybe if we knew for a fact this would could jump the, the, the species barrier, maybe then people would take it seriously. Maybe then. But then COVID comes along and yeah. you think, well, maybe not. Maybe that's not enough, you know. And so, I don't know. I, I, I'm still, I always say I'm kind of a product of the 60s where um, I, still, I still believe in the idea of doing something for, for, the, for the good of all. Um, whether you're with a serving, you know, we're always thanking service members for serving the military and you know, thank you for your service. But I think, I, I think that that needs a real expression in, 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 um, in, in real terms that when, when you serve your country, you really are doing it for the good of all. And then I think, well, I don't think it's asking that much for each of us for the good of all to get a vaccination. And that's, and then, you know, I know it's a, a small risk in some ways for some people to get that vaccination, but the the, the, the gr- much greater risk is if you don't, not just to yourself, but to the people around you. And I, I just, I, I've been surprised at um, how how few people really have tapped into that idea of doing it for the good of all, you know, the good of this, our American society, this, this wonderful country we live in, this great state we live in, and putting it in terms of um, what we can do as a community and really, because you think when, every time America's been done something great throughout its history, it's taken a combined effort. Yes. It's never been an individual effort. It's been combined efforts. And how proud we are of that in, in so many ways, whether it's World War II or, um, you know, strike, you know, the way we started off its country with the Revolutionary War, standing up, you know, it was a very divided country going into the Revolutionary War, but eventually enough people came together to say we want our independence and we've, we've had it ever since. And I think, I still think those kind of patriotic ideals are there, but we, for some reason we, we had not been able to tap into them in this COVID situation. And you've brought up two things, Patrick, that, that concern me then based on what we've just discussed around CWD. Two thoughts I've had, and I've shared one of them with you prior to us talking is that one 
what COVID has really taught me, if if we if we as a society can't get enough people on board to effectively protect the greater good when we are talking about humanity, it makes me greatly concerned about other cases that or causes that may very well impact humanity, but are going to start out by impacting other things in more subtle ways first. The other worry is that I did bring up to you previously was that as a state, as a group of collective hunters, we've had two decades to get our arms around chronic wasting disease and the potential threat it plays toward not only the deer herd, but the tradition of deer hunting as we know it, mm-hmm. the, the economic, positive economic impacts around that. If we can't get our ducks in a row to tackle this from a conservation or wildlife management standpoint... I know I'm young, relatively young. I don't have a lot of faith that we're going to put our heads together and solve a whole lot in my lifetime if this isn't something that we can have the stomach to make a priority. What are what are your thoughts about what the future, what the prospects of the future of dealing with this could potentially be like? Yeah, the um, I, I'm not optimistic either, but I haven't given up hope. I I keep hoping that somebody will come along who can galvanize. Um, help you know galvanize people around this issue um but you know right now though i think that one thing we can this kind of um i hate to say it but i think what's going to happen with this deer herd you know in my in my adult life deer have taken over the hunting world you know in in our country when i was like when i was a kid growing up um it was a lot more spread out a lot more um there weren't as many deer as there are now. So people tended to be a lot more spread out. There was small game hunting was a lot bigger than it is today. Squirrels and rabbits were a big thing that we hunted when I was a kid. Pheasants were big. Um, a lot of grouse hunting back then. Um, we didn't have turkeys when I was growing up, but um, that came along. And But deer um, deer was always like the big leagues and everything else was the, the minor leagues. But, but um, And we only hunted deer, you know, primarily for those nine days, that nine-day gun season. And some of us bow hunted, but um, we were hunt- hunting with old recurves and stuff, and the, we weren't having the impact on the herd that we can today with compound bows and that now more recently crossbows. Um, but I think what we what we will be seeing here as, as time goes on, because so far CWD, everything they predicted back 20 years ago, it's now happening. You know, it's just not happening at, as rapidly as they thought it might 20 years ago. But now you look at it and think, well, you predicted this. Your 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 schedule is made a little bit a little bit a bit off. But no, it's it's happening as they as they um, said. And now we're now we're able to put some um, timetables on this and see the speed it's moving at. But now in the meantime, too, we're, we're learning that it moves at different speeds on different landscapes depending on the, the habitat. Um, that, that soil soil quality typically the soil the, the high quality soils we have out in the farm country of southwestern Wisconsin the disease is spreading faster out in that area like Richland County um, is been it really took off in that county but but whereas it did not take off and spread across um, to the east the way it has in the west of Wisconsin so that that's something we're learning but my prediction here and it's not exactly um, going out on a limb is that We'll see a, a progressively younger herd taking shape in the landscape, but it won't be as big as the herd we have right now, and it and it won't you will not see the the great age distribution that we are capable of having right now. You won't see many four and a half and five and a half year old bucks, no matter how hard you try to 
um, grow them in your area by not shooting them when they're younger. So all this, so you know, eventually, Wisconsin's contribution to the Boone and Crockett Club, for instance, will decline. The Pope and Young Club that'll decline, and the rate we're going, all these things are going to happen. And I think too, what we'll see then is eventually, you'll see a lot of people. Like even now, people are asking themselves, why would I want to hunt Iowa County, Richland County? Sauk County, Dane County, if I know that every time I shoot a, see a deer go running by, it's a coin flip, whether or not it's going to be you know, sick with CWD. Why would I want to hunt there? So they start hunting somewhere else. And my feeling, though, is that I, I'm almost feeling these days like I'm just a, um, a hired gun trying to control the situation with this. this um, it's a... It's a ham-fisted way of doing things, but what else? What other, what other option do we have but to shoot these deer um, in the order they come by us? Not based on the size, not based on the antlers size, not based on body size, but basically there's a good reason these days to shoot every deer that goes by you indiscriminately. And I know <laughs> I, I did this year. I, I, I didn't look at the antlers. I just figured, well, I got a tag, I'm going to use it. Bang, and because and, you you can make an argument for all the ages of deer and all that, it makes a you can make a good argument that don't let this deer get past you because the more deer you leave around here, to um, if they're young, and they move on out of the area, well, they, if it's a young buck fawn, chances are it's going to be carrying that disease with it and spreading it to a new area. So it, you, have, you have a good reason to shoot it right now. If it's a yearling buck. Uh, chances are next year, when it's two and a half year old, it's going to be roaming a little bit farther during the rut and spreading CWD around to other areas that typically it doesn't, doesn't move into. And so there's a good reason to shoot that deer. And, uh, and if you think, well, if you, the more deer you have out there carrying around the disease, the greater chances you have. So, well, you better lower the population, so shoot that doe before she has two more fawns next year. And so really I can't come up with a really good reason anymore for not shooting some deer based on its age or size or sex gender or size yeah it's i mean it's it's and i just i shake my head because you're not wrong and that's that's the thing i I, that we're getting to the point where two decades two decades into this like you said that you, you really especially if you hunt in an area with any significant amount of cwd prevalence it's really hard to come up with a scenario where the responsible management decision to make with your gun is anything other than taking the first deer you see. Like you said, you did a great job breaking it down. Now I took this number, hopefully I took it correctly from one of your recent columns. We're currently sitting at 38 of 72 counties in Wisconsin that have a CWD positive test since, since Mm -hmm. the beginning of this. Do you think that we'll, do you think we'll ever see it get to all 72? Is that an inevitability or is that something that we maybe stand a fighting chance of avoiding at this point? Especially when you talk about some of the more urban populated counties, Milwaukee County, you right. know, things things along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, I, I really do think, unfortunately, that it will end up in every county. And in fact, right now, um, people like me who are always unhappy with the level of testing we've been doing, but, but testing isn't isn't cheap and it's not easy. It's um, a, a very tough thing to to, um, to carry out in a scientific way as far as randomly assessing an area to make sure you get a good scientific sampling. It's not it's not easily done. And but I think if we were really testing 
if we could somehow test all our counties in that randomly selected you know, way that you should do things scientifically, lay out a grid and say you want X the number of deer for each of these areas to get a good look at the um, disease risk in that, in that county. You know, we, went, we really haven't been able to do that around much all of Wisconsin. And there's plenty of areas in Wisconsin we have real holes in our coverage. So chances are we have a lot more than 38 counties carrying with deer carrying CWD. It's just a fact of life that um, it hasn't been a priority. Our, our, um, you know, going into 2007, it was a priority. But then the legislature got involved, cut funding for our, the te- testing, and they were in, in subsequent years cut DNR staff. And so all the things that um, cost money – a lot of stuff was eliminated. And so I, I could go on a, on a um, tirade and, and vent about the idea that nothing in, the, nothing in our society is free. If you, want, if you want to know the extent of a disease, well, you have to go out and test, and that's going to cost money. It's going to cost manpower. It's going to cost staffing. And the, 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 no one, you just can't do these things for free. And so, yeah, you might be paying less in taxes, but you're not getting the services that you probably need to really understand these things. These are all tough choices societies have to make. And the, the argument I'll always say, though, is that um, other societies before us, other times in American history, we have been willing to pay that price and bear that burden and, and do these things. Because they are tough to do, but we had, I th- like to think we had a time in our country where we had better leaders, more effective leaders who knew how to rally people, not just um, wait for direction. Where You know, one thing that bothers me, Nathan, so often politicians now when you ask them, why aren't you doing something about this? They'll say, well, when they hold their town meetings, no one asks them about it. And I think, well, okay, but what are you doing about it? Are you letting them understand that, folks, you know, right now you might not have it here in um, parts of Vilas County or parts of Oneida County, but your time's coming. And we can do something about now and keep it from coming up here, or we can just kind of, you know, play it by ear and take our chances. And what we've seen so far that um, it might not get there in the kind of numbers we're seeing down in farm country, but... I, I have a feeling that it's going to show up in these northern counties eventually. It's already in Vallas County, Oneida, Oconto. It has been found. I think it was found over in Washburn a few years ago, but not since then. But it's like I said earlier, it's not like we're not. It's not like we're up there testing all these counties aggressively either. You mentioned in so one of I, your, I, you mentioned in one of your columns that you you project and you're. I mean, granted, when you publish this column, your projections are probably going to be spot on. 25 counties were going to have fewer than 100 deer tested for CWD in Wisconsin this year. Do you think, right. what do you attribute the lack of testing to? Is it is it just as simple as people don't want to know, so they don't, they can't be bothered to ask? Is it is it really that simple? I think, I think for some people it really is. I mean, I, I've, I can't mention names because it would it ruined relationships in my personal life. But there are people in my circle who have said to me, ignorance is bliss. They just don't want to know. And I, of course, I think that's a selfish attitude that um, if you want to help the state get a handle on this and do something for the future, well, you should be doing your part by take, going to the big trouble of going down the road 10 miles and, and leaving a sam- you know, taking a sample off that deer 
and getting it tested because then it gives the agency a better idea of well, how many deer in this area have been tested, how many are, are positive, and, and can start um, doing something about it. But you know, we we, we had the power, the, the DNR has the power, but this doesn't use it to make testing mandatory in, in small areas and draw, draw a line in the map or a zone and say, in this area, we need everyone, all hands on deck to let us know um, what, what, what the extent of the disease is. But we've had people in our natural resources board prevent that from happening. Even when citizens have kept, you know, the one that comes to mind, Nathan, is right here where I live in, in Eau Claire County. They put together a panel about oh, three or four years ago of some of the, I think, the best conservationists in this area from their conservation congress, hunters, fishermen like like you and me, and they worked on the problem, came up with this, uh, a way to address it, and then at the last minute, the Natural Resources Board pulled the rug out from underneath them and said, no, we aren't going to make testing mandatory in that area. And I thought, God, you have citizen buy-in, you have people taking the bull by the horns, all the, all the cliche things, and then you decide on your own without being part of that process that you know better than these locals how, what the community thinking is. I just found that incredibly arrogant and irresponsible. And it's, it related to it, it was insulting to the people that put all this time and, and well, as you know, I know, time is money. I don't care if you're being paid by the hour. I don't care if you're a freelance like me. You understand right away that when people take time to come in on, on weekday weekday nights, work together with other citizens, then have all that work basically dismissed. That's insulting, and that really hurts our public um, democracy when you have people uh, being discounted like that. Well, and it's us shooting ourselves in the foot, or our, and in this case, our elected leaders shooting this entire process in the foot by how it's being handled, because this is an incredibly, just based on the science alone, this is an incredibly complex issue that brings with it a host yep. of challenges, some of which we haven't even gotten to yet, but we've discussed a few right. at length. But mm-hmm. then to add to the, the policy part of this, it, to your exact point, Patrick, it, it's it's hard enough to get the community buy-in and people who are willing to roll up their sleeves, like you said, whatever cliche you'd like to use, and stir up enough people to form a bandwagon and get some level of agreement that something needs to be done with enough energy behind it. That is so mm-hmm. hard to do in and of itself. But even then, you have the hurdles of legislators or other organizations to overcome that make it even more difficult that even in those rare yeah. instances that you get enough people forged together in an area to say, we've talked to the right people. This is what we want. This is what our community wants. This is how we think it should be handled. To get slapped in the face like that, it doesn't exactly it doesn't exactly do a whole lot for morale in places that are still even trying to drum up that level of support, much less see any form of success or tangible progress. Right. Yeah, and you think in the positives would have been um, if that program had been allowed to c- carry on for two years and we got some a real good look at the area and, and decide and find out that, hey, we can still stay ahead of this right now. We've, we've tested enough deer now to know, to help us plan our next plan, make our next uh, move. You know, th- then, then you have people thinking they did something. You know, you, you give, give them, they, they, they now have skin in the game. They've, they've put their, um, their best foot foot forward all the cliches and you think 
this would have been such a good positive thing for the area to show the rest of the state, here's how we did it in Eau Claire County, here's what you can do, and here's what we learned along the way, and you'd be pushing the ball forward. You know, really, really, I look at some of the people involved on this, and you know, they're, they're everyday farmers, citizens in this area who were so, who worked so hard on it, and then were so bitter afterward when they got dismissed. And you thought, boy, when you ask people to make that kind of commitment and then basically ignore them and almost diminish them, I thought that was insulting. I, I really felt like, oh man, can we get any lower right now than this? But I hope that, I keep hoping that things can change and that um, by having these kind of discussions that we can you know, keep keep people thinking about this because the, the problem has not gone away. No. And it's, no. it's, it's not going to go away. It's going to keep getting worse. And rather than acting like it's going to go away, I, I don't know how anyone can look at the numbers we're seeing right now and, and get complacent about it. I have a theory but on some, that. I have, some a, people, I have okay, a theory I'd like on to hear it. And it's not... It's kind of, and again, it's 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 amazing to me. Another parallel with observations I have made during COVID, the scale of the problem. I think there's come a point where the scale of the problem seems so incredibly large that a lot of people, unlike you and I, they do lose hope because it's mm-hmm. it's to them it's worse than bad. And then they see things like what happened in your county happen. They say it's kind of like some people think about voting. Nah, like it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, I have an opinion. Yes, I'd love to voice mm-hmm. it. I have lost any faith in my personal life that that, that that matters. Or even with COVID in a much more worse way for our humanity, the scale of loss for a while, especially in the summer of 2020, was so large. It numbers that you and I can't even fathom. A lot of people just chose to stop processing. And I can't say I necessarily blame anyone for that that thought, at least temporarily. Right. But big picture, you have to step back at some point and try. It's hard because unless it affects you personally or unless you do a lot of thinking on your own, it's hard to snap out of it and say, hey, like, okay, yes, temporarily, that's how people process sometimes. And mm-hmm. you need to move on from that and grow from it. I think kind of in a, to a lesser degree, because we're not necessarily talking about a major human disease, but we're talking about mm-hmm. one of the biggest wildlife issues we have. I think a lot of people have just give have unfortunately lost hope. And I think the future of how we handle this, not that I have a million bright ideas, I wish I did, mm-hmm. but the future of how we handle this is going to be about how we can... How we, the average person who wants to write about the outdoors, talk about the outdoors, attend DNR meetings, whatever it is, how effectively can we communicate the need for hope, the importance of hope, and Mm -hmm. perhaps more importantly, the viability of hope? Because I still think some Mm -hmm. hopeful outcomes of this are completely viable scenarios. That doesn't mean it's not going to take a lot of work. It doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. However, I still find reason for hope, as do you. I think a lot of it's going to be how can we reach out to that person who has become numb or who has become not necessarily mm-hmm. disinterested but downtrodden and disheartened. How do you? How yeah. many people can you save from the brink of whatever that feeling is? Right. Yeah, I am. I, um, I I've always I think from the time before I was even in the Navy, I really do believe in in the importance of strong leadership and strong you know good moral leadership where. Um, I have a little thing posted up here in my wall somewhere. I write down little quotations at times that I find inspirational and try to keep them in my mind. And one was by um, the uh, Martin Luther back in the when was Martin Luther around the 1600s? 
and he had this great line about, um, even if I knew tomorrow the world was going world would go to hell, I'd still plant my apple tree. And I think that's kind of the way I look at this. Hmm. I think I get I get kind of um, bummed about where the direction things are going, but I think while well, while I'm here, I still got to do my best to make make a good positive contribution for the people that follow me. I, I really believe we got to always be thinking of the future, and that's that's the. Um, I, I just don't want to ever give up. Another um, another little quote that comes to mind for me, and if you ever watched, it's an old movie from the '60s called Shenandoah by with Jimmy Stewart. And at the end of the movie, Jimmy Stewart has it's, it's, it, this movie takes place during the Civil War. He plays a father who's lost basically half his family to the Civil War, and he's just been beaten down. He's just lost another another kid and a, a daughter-in-law, and he's just wondering what was why why does he even try? And and his and his, his answer is because if if we don't try, we don't do. If we don't do, then why did God put us here? And I, I think that's all we can do sometimes is just say, yeah, it's not good. But is your is is doing nothing really the answer? Can you go home and look at your kids and say, oh, I give up? No, because I, I, I remember <laughs> trying to give up on my baseball team when I was 10 years old. And my dad's response to it was when he heard me say that, oh, we always get beat. I don't, I don't want to play this, this team tonight. He just looked at me and says, Pat, you're a chump. <laughs> and I didn't know... I, 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 I didn't know what a chump meant, but every time I think about giving up on something, I was thinking about that. And and he, I, re- I remember him saying, "You're a chump," and he walked away. And then uh, at then I'm sitting there during dinner that night, like a half hour later, and I said, "Well, I'm gonna go down, go down and play now." <laughs> I went down, play, got in the game and played. And I thought that was a that was a good lesson, you know, because he, he wasn't he didn't do the fatherly put his arm around me. And try to talk me into it. He just basically thought <laughs> this is not acceptable and called called me a name that I didn't understand. And I th- I think that's how I look at a lot of stuff today when I hear people saying ignorance is bliss. Why why worry about it? Can't do anything about it. I think okay, if you want to be a chump, that's fine. But I I can't I can't I can't accept that. We got we got to try. We got to at least try to to get do something about this. And that's why um during the gun season this year I. I ended up shooting five deer during the the we had a nine day gun season, a four day antler season, and the muzzleloading season. And in those three seasons, I, I shot five deer down in Richland County. And I hope that um, if enough people do that time and again, time and again, time and again, that eventually we'll f- somehow shoot our way out of this problem. I think I still think um, when I look at the, look at the the research that's been done. There's still a very good argument that the only way out of this is to is to shoot and keep shooting, and it might it might really drive that herd down to where it's not as much fun. You won't see as many deer anymore. But I think, well, would you ever see a few healthy deer or a lot of sick ones? Yep. And I, I know where I come down. You know, I, I just don't. I don't, and I think that's that's the issue we'll be facing. Absolutely, and I think that your point is well taken. That it sounds. I don't want to say inhumane. It sounds a little barbaric, but you're exactly right. The weapons that our massive deer hunting community that hope that isn't as large as it once was, but right, our, that's their our big deer hunting community, it's a very large one. That is the best tool. Those, those firearms we carry with us are the best tool we've got right now, because I think it's important to note that while there is part of my reason for hope long-term 
is that I am hopeful and I, though TSEs have proven a little hard to, to solve from a scientific standpoint, there are examples in the past of human inter successful human intervention in cases of extreme wildlife disease. And th the thing is, the big kicker right now is that in order to even talk about doing that, you need a cure or at least a treatment of some kind, which we are not in possession of as a species right now as it pertains to right. CWD. So until that day comes, it's the Orange Army every November is our best shot yeah. at, getting our, at getting our arms around this because... We need to do as much as we can to, at a minimum, buy time, but at a maximum, hopefully start controlling the situation a lot better than we've been controlling it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, well said. I want to talk one one or two more negatives before we hopefully finish on somewhat okay. of a positive. Because we, <laughs> sure. we have talked a lot of reality that is a little, a little dim looking at points, but one thing I mm -hmm. think is not talked about a lot... Um, we're working very hard in this state in terms of money, resources, research, land, time and effort to reintroduce elk in Wisconsin. And thing that it doesn't come top of mind right now because the elk population, the reintroduced one is so new, but CWD affects members of the Servid family, which elk are members of. And, mm -hmm. and by your estimation, Obviously, the more the more prevalent CWD is, the tougher the hill, the upward climb for elk is going to be in our state. And there's a dozen barriers outside of that. But in a way, I almost feel as though this needs to be a talking point because like, all right, we're committed to this. And we committed to this after we found CWD. We need to do this the right way. How do you think chronic wasting disease and reintroduction of an elk herd in certain parts of our state how do they either mesh or how, how does this make it a larger problem or a tougher effort? Yeah, I, um, on the positive side, at least we know that, um, at least the best we know is that elk do not get CWD at, at, as easily as, as deer, as whitetails do. Whitetails seem especially susceptible to it, but elk do get it. I mean, it's, it's happened. Um, uh, Arkansas has a problem with it in the elk herd and, um, most the West, like Colorado, has some areas with, with elk with CWD problems, but it doesn't doesn't seem to be as as bad a problem with elk. But um, there are um, <laughs> W donors like me who back in the '90s, when the elk herd was the whole idea of the elk reintroduction was was taking shape, I was um, not real outspoken about it, but I wasn't all that enthused about because I thought. God, you really want to be talking about putting another big servant on the on the landscape that can get this disease potentially, you know, sustain that disease and keep it moving. I wasn't all that all that wild about it, but I also know that God is something that people really wanted. It's something that they you know, really rallying behind, and and it's hard it's hard to get um it's hard to say no when people want to do something good. Yes, and, yes, and I and, and I mean because you know we did wipe out the elk out of this out of the state you know over a century ago, and it's really cool that people want to bring it back. Agreed, and do something about it. and 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 it is it is something that they really wanted, and even even some of the politicians like Tommy Thompson or former governor really wanted it, so so it happened, and then once it's here, I I look at it thinking it it is cool. I've I've seen a few elk up in the Clam Lake area where I deer hunting. Go ice fishing up there, that area, and and um, have seen some, and I've seen I haven't seen them down 
close to me here in, in the Black River Falls area where there's a new, now a growing herd. But um, that is a concern. And it'll be interesting to see how, as time goes on, because I'm sure CWD will show up in the elk herd. It's, it's just a matter of time, I think, for, like we were talking earlier about, that disease spreading into the northern colonies. And I don't think it'll ever be, um, I guess I'd be surprised if CWD becomes as prevalent in the northern colonies as it does down in the farm country. But, um, you know, in, the, in this past fall, this past um, hunting season, we did see the number of CWD positives um, about double in the central farms of Wisconsin. You know, it had been; it's still primarily in this, the southern farm farmland country, but in the cent, in the central farms too, it, it went up this year. It went up, um, almost, like I said, almost double. To I think we're up at about eighty nine, ninety cases now have been documented up in the central farms, farm country, and be, going into season we had about half that. So I'm I'm hoping that it's not going to jump double again next year but um i guess i won't be shocked if it does because that's kind of been the pattern once it'll, it'll get into an area start increasing that area then just keep pushing out and you hope the habitat is such that won't spread quite as fast but then you hope the hunters would take it um, seriously to shoot more than one you know that's one of those things we, we get into you know when you get you talk you mentioned hunter numbers and the hunting population is declining in wisconsin and we also know that no matter how many tags you give people, the average Wisconsin hunter is going to shoot 1.3 deer. It's about what it comes out to on average. And so there, there are ideas that come along, but no one seems to take them seriously in the legislature. But that's one idea they had was to um, pay people a good chunk of money if a deer they shoot tests positive. And that that uh, then provide a financial a incentive, bounty, a bounty system. About basically amounts to a bounty, and that the argument can be made though I think that um well if this is valuable to us and I think it is, well why do we spend way more than this? We spent way more than what this program would cost to pay people to sh- to shoot deer, um, to pay them if they get one positive, and pay the landowner some money if they, if some of the deer test positive. We would pay we're paying a, we'd pay a lot less for that than what we. Paid for like um, Milwaukee Brewer Stadium or the Milwaukee Bucks State um, facility or the even the Packers at Lambeau Field, we put a lot of public money into those those entities, and I think, and really, how is that really improving our quality of life? And where I argue, when you come into hunting and fishing, where these be, for me personally become real quality of life issues when you think what people um, get out of hunting. In terms of food, in terms of family connecting, connectedness, things that really um, do have an impact on your life the next day, I, I think there's a good argument to be made that we should be trying these kind of things with with uh, the uh, to control CWD. And I think that I completely agree with you that I mean that's part of the reason this this podcast exists. It's part of the reason I even spend my free time trying attempting to be an outdoors writer is because. I am someone who does deeply believe in the quality of the impact of the quality of life and the, the, the better quality of my life, the more time I spend in the outdoors the more time I spend being able to share and inform other people about what can be gained, you know, from a peace of mind standpoint, from a connection to the larger world standpoint, I, I'm in complete agreement on that with you, Patrick, but here's the other thing I wanted to bring up too. This was the last negative thing I want to touch on, but like, it is a uh-huh. positive as well. Hunting does, it doesn't get talked about often because 
we love to wax poetic about hunting and about time in the woods and about time on the water. Hunting, particularly deer hunting, though, in our state, has a significant economic impact. And if the number of hunters continues to decline, the number of healthy deer you can pursue, uh, pursue continues to decline while the population continues to rise, that is such a tangled mess of very important numbers that there are ramifications even outside of even outside of the hunting community where that are going to be felt for possibly years or decades to come. And one of the first things I'd point to, this isn't CWD specific, but it's deer hunting specific. Look at the economic impact in some small towns when in-person deer registration went away. Now take oh, right. that times, right. now take that times. Well, now we're losing a bunch of the deer hunting population and people just aren't even going at all. We like the funding for the, a lot of the very research that can hopefully get us out of this mess or research on anything else is funded by the fact that people pay for their license and zip up their blaze orange every November. If that stops happening, we've got some big time issues. Yeah. Oh, huge. Yeah. And one of the things I'll always talk about is that hunters can rightfully say, okay, we're paying for this. What are you paying for? And really, when, when we give other other opportunities for people to contribute to the conservation efforts in our in our state, uh, typically they get shot down real fast. And they'll say things like, "Oh, but we're not causing any harm." And, and like my favorite example of this was about ten years ago. A professor I know, a good friend of mine, um, he's retired, long retired, but he came up with this real, I thought it was a sensible program where he said, why not allow bird feeders to pay a, a tax on, on the bird feed they put out? And when they buy the bird feed, to be paying a, an excise tax on that. Hunters pay an excise tax on when they buy arrows and they buy firearms, ammo, we pay excise taxes. And when he proposed the idea and went on public radio to talk about why we should consider um, taxing bird feed, he got the living crap kicked out of him. Just people, you know, you talk about people getting mad. One of my um, little life lessons as a writer, I, I found that if I, deer hunters can be vicious sometimes in their criticism. Yes. But, until you until you met until you made bird watchers mad, <laughs> you don't know mad. <laughs> And bird watchers got really mad at Tom Herberline when he suggested that they pay a tax. But the thing is, why, when you think about how much enjoyment people get from watching birds in the backyard, I do it. Oh, I do it too. I think, uh, why, why should, why shouldn't we um, kick in something to help help the long term good there? I don't see why that's such a radical idea, or like um, people can go off and canoe into the backcountry Wisconsin or kayak. And not have to have to pay a registration fee on their on their um, on their watercraft. You know, we act like oh, because you're out there um, just recreating and you're not shooting anything that you should have to pay anything. I think, but you're getting tremendous enjoyment out of this, and by paying into a, a fund for for future wildlife uh, management um, or good places just to put your canoe in, why not? Why shouldn't you be paying a little bit extra for that? Other states do it. But, you know, here in Wisconsin, we fight about that, you know. So I, I just wish people would understand that everything that they're looking at and enjoying right now, this isn't by accident. Someone 
is doing something there or, or has done something in the past to make that possible for you to enjoy. And typically it's been hunting and, and fishermen yes. paying these fees that put a lot of these opportunities out there for people. They're now reaping these benefits and acting like it's all just happened to drop in your lap. And like, no, it didn't drop in your lap. People put a lot of programs, a lot of good research into this for, for water quality. You name it. You get on a list of all things that we've helped fund. So I, I get a little bit defensive and irritated when people act like there's that their their recreation is so pure that they shouldn't have to pay anything for it. And I think it has nothing to do with purity; it has everything to do with conservation and the long term good of the other ecosystems and the people that 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 um recreate in them and benefit from them. Well, and it's the thing is, and I, I've had um I was lucky enough to have, and I I, I laugh because I, I even text him about this once in a while. I, I've, I've had Joel Bryce, the chief conservation officer of Delta Waterfowl, has been on this show twice. And oh, he's, taught, he's taught some incredible lessons to me that, and they must have been incredible because I seemingly find a way to work him into every episode and I'm going to do it here. Uh-huh. He pointed out that in terms of funding, anything with habitat, places for enjoyment, clean water, whatever you want to look at, we have a math problem in this country. And it's that the people who pay for everything, as you pointed out before, there's less of them than there used to be. But the people who are using, in some cases, are at all-time highs. And the fact of the matter is, the the hunters in many cases, especially, I think it just happened in our state from, from a state duck stamp standpoint, but on the federal level too, hunters have already agreed to increase their share that they pay, yeah. despite yeah. the fact that there's fewer of them. At some point, this 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 checkbook is not going to balance. And if we want it to, yeah. it's going to require contribution. Like you said, Patrick, it has nothing to do with the purity of the activity. It has everything to do with the value, as you said earlier, nothing's free. What is the value we place on this as a society? And if you are recreating here, you clearly place some value on it. At some point, we're not going to be able to, as much as I wish it was true, we're not going to be able to double or triple our hunter numbers in my lifetime. That's not going to happen. Right. Someone right. has to pay for this, and it's going to need to be a team effort. And it goes back to our earlier theme of the greater good. The greater good's going to have to win out if we're going to continue this. Yeah. Well, and well, yeah, one thing I um I've come to realize in recent years is is you really don't you really don't appreciate how much extra work it takes to, to hunt and fish compared to other recreations that have been <laughs> booming in recent years. You know, you, you think, you look at the individual kayak, these little one-person kayaks. Those weren't even a thing until about 20 years ago. And then then um, I'd say about the mid-2000s, they started booming. And I, I, um, I saw it firsthand because I used to hunt, I used to fish a little system of lakes in, in the Wapaka chain they're called the, the the upper chain in Wapaka. Um, little bitty um, lakes that, that were only way you could get into them was a, a basically a it wasn't a walk in access, but it was basically a, a canoe and small boat access. And I used to have it pretty much to myself most weeknights. But then the kayaks came along, and all of a sudden you go in there and you can't find a park, parking spot anymore. It's, everyone's in there with their little kayaks, but it's so easy to have access to that recreation compared to like um, for fishing, you got, you're just starting out with your boat. That's just the first thing. Then to, to fish though, then you need 
Like you need fishing rods, you need fishing tackle, you need depth finder, you need, you name it. You know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. And hunting's the same way. Oh yeah. The first, the first step one for a duck hunter is basically his, his waders, and then the boat, and then you just start adding up thing after thing after thing. To, to get on the water duck hunting, it's a major operation. Whereas a, a kayaker, a one-person kayak, it's a matter of, of seconds, basically, to get, get that thing off the roof and not into the water and off you go. So, And then I think, too, the, the other thing that made me much, much more aware of how easy it is for some other forms of recreation and why they're gaining in popularity or at least sustaining themselves, I took up running about 20, not quite, uh, 15, 16 years ago. Well, I can go anywhere in this country when I'm traveling and be out running within usually about five, ten minutes from it's when true. I wake up. Try that fishing. It doesn't happen. No. You know, it's usually, usually got to get ready the night before. And so you think hunting and fishing are really labor-intensive, money-intensive things that um, you can see why other why, – you see why people who don't do them don't do them because it's just – it requires a real conscious – effort and it requires a money investment that um they just think ah it's it costs too much whatever it might be yes you're exactly right you're exactly right and i think i well i know that i want to spin the ending here to not spin it because i'm glad we had a conversation based in the reality of the situation and a lot of things we discussed there are a lot of there's a lot of room for improvement there's a lot of change that's needed that is simply the fact of the matter However, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer. I heard a quote recently because as I have gotten more and more serious and thoughtful about the conservation aspect of the activities I enjoy, whether it's hunting or fishing, whatever the case may be, you start to realize a lot of the challenges that do exist in, in the natural, even even in having habitat for these animals to live or clean water for them to drink or in some cases live in. There are a lot of problems, unfortunately with the world. However, what really keeps me going, a quote I heard recently is that rather than being overwhelmed by all of that, the saying went something along the lines of identify your little corner of the world and take the best care of it that you possibly can. When we talk about chronic wasting disease in the average hunter or even the average citizen in the state of Wisconsin, what in your estimation can be done to take the best care of your little corner of Wisconsin that you can? Well, I like to think that, um, not that I'm a perfect person, because I'm not, but I I was really proud of the fact that this fall, I did what I could do. Um, I hunted, I, I shot deer, I used them as best I could, and I, unfortunately one of them did test positive, so it, I just disposed of that meat. But, but I think it really... Really, um, it's important for all of us, you know, to, to do those things that will add up collectively to, to make a big difference in this world. I really believe in that, the idea that, um, that you know, Emerson had this great quote about one man with conviction, if he plants himself upon his, his place and abides, the world will come around to him. And I think, well, that might not come around to all of us, but I think we should at least try you know, I think we really, I really believe in trying. I, 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 I God, I can't say it enough. I, I really, I, I, I said before, I'm a Wisconsin chauvinist. I'm also an American chauvinist. I really think we're a unique people with so much potential for so much good. And it really hurts to see it squandering it with, with so much of the fighting we've seen in recent years among ourselves. We have, 
we have plenty of issues we should be tackling and taking pride in tackling and, and, and solving. And so I, I guess that'd be my, my biggest wish for people is don't get mad about this stuff. Do something about it. Do something constructive. And don't, you know, you're not going to get, I mean, I, I, just, I, I don't expect people to read one of my columns and march off and, 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 um, and, and take direction and, 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 and change the world sure. from something I've written. Uh, you know, I hope that I'm providing information they can put to use. But I, I think as a journalist, though, it's not my job to go out and rally people behind every single issue. I think at some per, at some point people have to take the initiative and call their legislation. I, yeah, I think it should go without saying that if you don't like something I've written, you can write to me <laughs> and get it out, you know, yell at me, but the person who's going to change this isn't me. It's the, it's it's your legislators. It's they 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 should be hearing from all the all the people who are mad about this stuff, and realize that no, we are asking you to do something here, and we, we are asking you to, to be a good elected representative. We I believe in representative democracy, and right now a lot of these people are not representing us. They're they're ignoring this problem. They're wishing it will go away and hoping that the next person that comes into office will will tackle it. And I think no, you should you should be held accountable. And the, the, the thing I see, Nathan, is either you straighten them out or you vote them out. And they should be told that repeatedly that well, I want you to, I want you, my elected representative, to take this issue seriously and do something about it. And if you don't, if I don't start seeing some positive action coming out of your office, I will vote for someone else and I will campaign for someone else who will. And if they don't do it, I'll I'll work against them. But I think that's how we. Ch- you know, we have so many levers we can push. We act like we're just one person can't do it all, but I think I see plenty of good people out there working day in, day out, going to committee meetings, volunteering their time, and doing good things. And so I, you can't tell me that that they aren't busy either. They're, we're all busy. We all have obligations. So I, I, I um. I just don't buy buy a lot of the excuses people come up with. I, I think it's something that, if we're responsible citizens, we get involved and we hold our we tell our elected representatives what we think and what we hope they'll do, and do it. In, in, I think in a, in a polite but firm way. I don't, I don't think calling them names and swearing at them and bashing the phone down is going to impress them. They no. just think you're just another hothead. But if you're come across like like Nathan here and talk to them constructively. Um, and, you, and you just do it consistently, I think eventually they start listening. But it can't just be a one shot. They got to know they're going to hear from you every time. And I, I, the example I have is my paternal, my, my maternal grandfather, he was always writing letters to his congressman, the governor, whoever it might be. And, you know, I, I think there's something to be said for that. Yes. I, I just admire that, that, that's, that this guy not only votes, but he lets them know what he, where he stands on various issues. And I think I'd rather see that if everyone was doing that at least once or twice a year, can you imagine how much mail would be flooding in, email would be flooding into these elected representatives if, if each of us took the time once a year to let them know, to maybe evaluate their performance over the past year and that kind of thing. Definitely. That, that's, that's a really cool – and part of it is just it depends on – I was going to say that's a very – awesome old school way of thinking that I think that hasn't necessarily lost its impact, but it's lost its place right. at the top of people's minds. And it's, it's probably, I would say, especially now, because a lot of people don't take the time to voice their opinions. It's probably, especially in a constructive way, that's probably something that carries more weight now than it has in a long time. If you're willing to be dedicated to it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think part of the problem is we have gotten complacent, you know, um, we, we see, I grew up right in the shadow of, of the world, of world war two. I, I came to realize I, I didn't know it when I was growing up, but I realized later in life, I realized, well, the reason these things, um, had such impact on my life and we had leaders that people would look up to and we had people we'd rally around things like the polio vaccine whatever it might be because we really had my parents had experienced firsthand hardship from depression from world war ii they understood that the alternatives were not good they'd, they'd lived through those and so they they um really i think pushed that forward i think unfortunately my generation the baby boomers um, really lived in just blessed times. We didn't have to. We didn't have the sacrifice my parents' generation made or my grandparents' generation made. So I think we all got a little complacent, and that's. And I think I. I'll be the first one to say that my generation did not do a good job of sustaining the urgency and the importance of community involvement and why it matters, and making sure our kids understand why it matters. Um, and but I, while I'm here, still breathing, I I hope I'll keep. Um, letting people know that this is this is the only way forward. You can find other ways, and you can act like um, just getting mad and being pissed off all the time. Like they, I see all these things. I see these bumper stickers on people's windows and on their cars and their trucks. And I think, is being angry going to get you anywhere? How does that help? How does that move the ball forward here? Um, you know, I see all these f this and f that signs on political banners. I just think, where did this come from? This anger. And what are you mad at? And is being and if you can identify what you're mad at, how is that going to change anything? Where if you get involved in a constructive way, all these things can start being addressed. But um, I, I believe in the idea that humans create most most of the problems we're now dealing with, and therefore we can solve them. It's not not out of our it's not with that not out of our bones. I, and I really appreciate that attitude. I really I because I and, and I agree with it. You're exactly right. It's something that if we are willing to put our minds to it and and do the work, that's the big thing. We are capable of solving it. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the second we start putting in the tiniest bit of effort, we're going to be solving all of these problems. It's going to still take a lot of elbow grease. But the good news is right. the silver lining is we are capable of fixing a lot of these issues eventually through hard work, CWD mm -hmm. included. And it's just a matter of yeah. fortifying enough folks and the right folks and keeping that energy level up and, and the focus where it needs to be across our organizational bodies, our, legislat our legislators, and especially amongst the people who are united in loving the outdoors. And I think that's mm -hmm. easier said than done, but it's definitely possible. And Patrick, I want to thank you for an awesome conversation. I know we went over the time, I promised you at the beginning of this, but I enjoyed our conversation thoroughly. And I want well, to- I talk you, too much. <laughs> nah, you you talked the perfect amount. You talked the perfect amount. And I, I want to give you a chance to, you alluded to it a couple of times. If people want to read your work, where can they find your latest stuff? How can they keep up with you? Where yeah. can they find all of these? I mean, we reference probably five or six. I mean, I probably alone reference four or five of your columns. Where can they find all this goodness? Um, my, my, uh, I have a website, patrickdurkinoutdoors.com. And it's just you know, my name, patrickdurkinoutdoors.com, all one word. And then I have in, in there a weekly column I, I post up every, every, every week when I write it, I put it on there. And also um, my columns are also carried by the Wisconsin Outdoor News every, every other week. Um, and the Anago newspaper, the, White, the Watertown newspaper, 
Shatak, uh, Baron, Lady Smith, and Bloomer up here in my country carry my column. And so I, I'm out there. And then also, um, I'm also writing, I write every two weeks for Meat Eater. They, those are not Wisconsin based, they're, they're more of a uh, broader based audience. But I, I, um, I've been lucky. I, I work hard at it. But I, I, my stuff is out there. And, and I, I'll always tell people too, feel free to contact me. I'm, you know, I, I have the email address on my website. So it's, it's all there. So I, I, and I hope that people um, start listening to you too and keep this going because it's all, it's, it's one thing I love about the, the media today. Um, so many people out there, I, I never turn down opportunities to talk on people's podcasts because I, I always say you never know when the next guy you talk to, next woman you talk to, they become someone <laughs> down the road that that um you want them to be thinking good of you that you took time to to talk to them and and, and reach their audience. Well, I appreciate you taking the time because um it's just good. It's it's one thing I've mentioned a couple times here with many of the guests I've been fortunate to have on this show already, and and you being amongst them that it's one thing I have found pleasantly. Uh, as a pleasant reminder of the quality of many of the people who spend their time making a living in the outdoors or at least sharing their knowledge of the outdoors is that I have found this incredible willingness to share and to pass along information and perspectives and have constructive conversations that I try not to take for granted because I don't think you'll find that everywhere, especially these days. And I appreciate you for joining that, that growing list of folks who are willing to take the time to spread knowledge and have conversation. Well, thank you, Nathan. That's very kind. Happy to do it. Well, we'll do it again sometime. Thank you very much for the time, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. We will talk again soon, yeah. I hope. Yeah. Sounds good, Nathan. Good talking to you. Now I realize those of you who have listened to the show frequently just endured a conversation that had a very different tone than many of the discussions that I've had on the show throughout the nearly year it's been running. I try my best to be positive. I try my best to empower action and give hope to everyone, even when we're discussing these types of tough issues. And I want to reiterate, there is hope. There's, there are things we can do. But I also want to establish the fact, if I haven't already on previous episodes, that part of loving nature and being an active participant in outdoor recreation is assuming a certain level of responsibility for the well-being of the environment and the animals that inhabit it. This was a tough conversation. There were some silver linings, but not as many as I would have liked. There are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of drawbacks to getting work done on the CWD front. But that doesn't mean that we should sit idly by. That's not an option. Doing nothing is, is never the best thing to do. So I do want to try to end on a positive that if you deer hunt or know someone who does, do your best to try to keep this topic top of mind the top of your own mind, as well as the minds of people who you know and love who deer hunt. Because we need to keep that energy level around this as high as possible to drive towards solutions. Because every time you pull that trigger out in the woods, 
you're not only making an ethical decision, you're making a management decision. And the calculus that goes into that management decision when it comes to deer hunting in Wisconsin needs to change. It needs to change. Because it has become pretty clear over the last 20 years that we are not making the type of management decisions that we need to make to curb the spread of chronic wasting disease. Now, does it all fall at the, at the feet of the hunters? Not necessarily, but a lot of it does. A lot of this does fall on the people who are pulling the trigger each winter or not pulling the trigger each winter. And yes, there's plenty of political red tape and it's unfortunate. But so much of this is focusing on what we can control and what we can control is how we discuss this topic, what we do to keep it top of mind, what we do in our little corner of the world to help prevent the spread of CWD. Whether it's properly disposing of carcasses, whether it's more aggressively harvesting deer on the properties you hunt, particularly if CWD is present in the county in which you hunt, or simply getting your deer tested when you do harvest one. It's free. It's a small bit of paperwork. There are many drop-off locations throughout the state. I'm nearly certain every county has at least one drop-off location. Get your deer tested. 70% of hunters have never had their deer tested, a single deer tested for CWD. And of that 30% that have, I guarantee you not all of them are regularly getting their deer tested. We need to change that. As Patrick mentioned, our state deals with enough limitations to the available testing power it has, but we're not using our available power to its fullest potential right now. The DNR is working hard to provide opportunities for hunters to contribute to the testing of CWD or testing for CWD. And this is where hunters like you and I need to answer the call. It's a relatively quick turnaround. It's a very simple process. It's just something we need to look into. And it's something we need to be better at because we can only manage this as best we understand it. And testing right now is our best tool for understanding the spread of this disease. It is crazy and scary and sad, all of the comparisons and parallels there are between this and COVID. And you know, as, as we talked about in our conversation, Patrick and I, that there's a lot of differing opinions on how to handle COVID, a lot of different schools of thought, and the same is true of CWD. It doesn't mean that there is a perfect way to handle both of those situations, because I'm not saying my way is the right way or Patrick's way is the right way, but what I am saying is there are certainly ways that are better than others. There are certainly certain trains of thought and action that contribute more to the greater good than others. And that's something that needs to be considered when we all come up with plans of how we are going to do our part. Regardless of your views, your part that you can do, that you can contribute to this CWD situation, it exists. And I think it's important that each of us identifies what our part is from a moral and ethical standpoint. What is our responsibility? What can we do better? We need to look in the mirror. And instead of pointing fingers about what everyone else is or isn't doing, we need to think about what we can do and start there.
so yeah, this was a tough conversation, but sometimes when it comes to something you love, tough conversations need to be had. That's just part of life. So I appreciate you taking part in this difficult conversation, but hopefully you left this with a little more information than you had, a different perspective on CWD than maybe you had in the past. And hopefully right now you're thinking of what you can do, what we can do to help contribute to making this story, the management of CWD, ultimately another one of the outdoor successes in our state. We've been successful at hard things before. Reviving the deer herd in the latter half of the last century. That's a success story. The reintroduction of turkeys, a massive success story. The, the progress we're making on reintroducing the elk herd, I'd argue that's a success story. And no, we haven't really dealt with anything quite like this, at least recently in our history. CWD is a unique challenge. But together, there are things we can do to continue to improve the situation and maintain a healthy, quality deer herd. I think it's just time for some reflection from all of us, myself included, of what we can do better. Being educated, spreading the word, getting your deer tested, being careful how you dispose of carcasses. All of those things are small things we can do to hopefully turn this thing around. Because right now it's not headed in a great direction, but I am optimistic that together we can find some solutions. So thank you for sticking it through this conversation and having an open mind. I appreciate that. Hopefully you learned a few things. I know I did. A few reminders. If you have feedback on this show or on the website in general, you can reach out to me via email at natewoofel at gmail.com. That's N-A-T-E-W-O-E-L-F-E-L at gmail.com. If you enjoy these episodes, and some of the future ones are going to be a little lighter than this one, but it's important we have these kinds of talks once in a while. If you enjoy these episodes, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening right now. You'll never miss another show. Be sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Nathan Wolfel Outdoors or on Instagram at ndubs 41 That's at N-D-U-B-S 41 on Instagram. And I hope you find some time to enjoy the Wisconsin Outdoors between now and the next time we speak. And we'll talk again real soon.